On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Now, joining me here in studio as we head into our paper review, we have Adrienne Sweeney, whose voice will be familiar to a number of our listeners. She's also the director of Paris Court Spring Health Farm and the owner of Rainforest Spa. She's on my right in the studio. And John Cunningham, who describes himself as a man of many hats. Uh, he has a few hats on today. He's relationship director with recruiter Morgan McKinley and chair of the Lissus Group. Now, before I come to either of you, and I know we'll kick off rugby, but let's see what's also scattered across the uh, front page. And just to say, this is a very special edition of the On The Record. You're actually here as history is to be made, the final ever edition of On The Record. So it has a slightly funereal atmosphere at this show, but will be all the more interesting for that. Lots of pathos floating around, but it is the last edition. I'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show between now and one o'clock. So let's have a look at the Sunday Times. Israeli troops poised for Gaza invasion. Next stop, our next stage is coming, says Netanyahu. Evacuation chaos as tanks near the border. So we'll keep an eye on that during the show. We don't know, obviously, we're not privy to when the Israeli troops will go into Gaza and what the extent of it will be, but... Rest assured, if that does actually happen and tanks start moving into that area, that very congested area, uh, demographically, we'll bring you up to speed on that. On the right-hand side of the Sunday Times, then Ireland's World Cup dream crumbles as All Blacks edge thriller. So we'll talk about that in a second. There's no way around it, unfortunately. Health spending is a theme also happening. The uh, Irish Mail on Sunday has blocking... Two million, or sorry, two billion, of course. Two million is nothing in the health service these days. Two billion health spending is insane. This is a story, essentially, that Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, was blocked by his colleague, Pascal Donoghue, who is ex-public expenditure minister. Um, essentially, what happened here is health spending was withheld to the tune of two billion. A request from the minister, according to the mail at least, was made, but not granted. So it doesn't seem to be going well in terms of the the jockeying for internal position within the cabinet for Stephen Donnelly. Health also leading the Sunday Independent. HSE chief warned budget not enough to cover costs. Bosses claim service needed at least two billion. So again, same figure as in the mail, but only granted 800 million. So it's almost like a continuation of the mail story with additional figures in that. So Stephen Donnelly seems to be getting bounced around in cabinet, if you believe all these stories. He's not getting his budget. And of course, lots of people will wonder well, what are the underlying reasons, the roots of why the service is gobbling down so much cash when some of the outcomes, at least, are not necessarily ideal? We'll talk about that with our panel in a second. Picture of Johnny Sexton holding his brow and not looking too happy is the picture story on the front of the Sunday Independent. And finally, the Sunday Business Post, or the Business Post, as we call it these days, they have turmoil in property market as investors hand office keys back. This is an intriguing account of the downturn in the commercial property sector course, residential, pretty uh, hot still. But this is a quote from James Anderson, a partner in Deloitte, Ireland, who says that he's aware that a number of um, lenders have seized properties and taken control of them as asset prices collapse in office land. A lot of this will be connected, of course, to working from home. And there is a slight sort of health story again at the bottom of the page. says government will need three billion budget bailout. So it seemed they had lots of money last week, but now we seem to be talking about bailouts. This is because a supplementary estimate so you hear your budget, you hear your speech, you see all the beaming politicians and then there's a few extra euros sort of thrown in at the last moment, squashed in um, as the finances go along. According to this, it's an extra $1.1 billion that will be required to shore up various parts of the health service and also to deal with the um, Ukrainian refugee accommodation issue as well. That will be money needed for that too. So 
we're not out of the woods in terms of the final total spend that this government will put forward in 2023 and governing what will happen in 2024. Right, I think I've done all four. And um, when I came in to do the show, I was thinking yesterday, this will be a great show to do. We'll be celebrating an Irish win. Um, sorry, my luck was not in at all, but we'll try and make best of what we can with this. Let's talk to my panel. I said, Adrian Sweeney is here on my right and John Cunningham is here on my left. I'll come to you, Adrian, first. There's only one place to start, unfortunately. Be tender with us all. Uh, we're all. Some of us have hangovers. Some of us are just very depressed. Uh, where did you watch the game and what did you make of it all? I actually watched it um, with family last night and it, I ended up at the end of the night um, putting my 11-year-old son to bed who was just inconsolable at the loss. And what he said to me was, Mom, we, you made me hope. You made me hope that we could win. And I think we did. We all had that hope. And it was a slim hope and we knew what we were coming up against. But at the end of the day... Um, we were just overcome and it was a really bitter end to Johnny Sexton's career. It was a hard way for him to go out. But, you know, we can't take away, you know, the the, the plane that they've, you know, just exhibited in this tournament so far has been stellar. And it was a clash of the Titans last night. And unfortunately, we didn't come out successful. So it was bitterly disappointing. No, for there's everybody. nothing we can kind of, you know, a lot of times Irish fans will say this refereeing decision or this thing, the kind of was none of that. We just fell slightly short, unfortunately. John, how are you this morning? <laughs> You, I, you look strangely radiant despite everything that's happened. What, what was your take on the whole game? So first of all, I think it's, it was a chance to even come in this morning just to step back and realise, first of all, what an extraordinary few weeks. What an extraordinary performance that the team have had. Andy Farrell is a man who is now in the Jack Charlton kind of realms of fabulousness. And to me, it just strikes me that the legacy they've left already, in particular the fans going to Paris, and I gather again the response in France to the Irish fans has been Italian and Italian 90s style gratitude and participation has been phenomenal. But again, it's just that stunning sense that we live in a world where we can devote a night like last night in a luxurious way to watching a game of rugby in a world that seems to be falling apart. How lucky we to live in an environment like that. But you have to think that, you know, they fought so hard in that last 10 minutes of the game. They just left nothing behind and there's nothing more you can ask than that. And then forget... Whoever thought we would go into a match against the All Blacks thinking we were going to win anyhow, all right? And we went in thinking that. So to me, it's been an extraordinary few weeks. I mean, these guys have represented the country so well and the fans have done the same. So to me, it's we'll get over today the hangovers and the, 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 the analysis, but it's been an extraordinary few weeks. Now, Adrian, one of the things that I find fascinating, and again, it may be just me because I have all sorts of quirky thoughts at times like this, but... You know, when you talk about the Late Late Show and all that, we're always talking about there isn't sort of an event that brings big crowds together anymore. There isn't an event that brings whole families in their sitting room together. This was one of those where, you know, right from the children to the parents to the grandparents, the relations, a lot of people you talk to were with families last night. So it's one of those few things, sport, that can bring these big numbers together, which in 2023 is unusual. Yeah, and I think rugby as well has um, gained popularity across the board and across Irish society as well. So it's lovely to see that we can all get behind the country and it's not just a certain kind of section of Irish society that, that is taking part in this. And, you know, we we all need something to, to cheer for from time to time. And, and you know, we had an excellent team um, to, to support and I actually think the Irish fans did such a wonderful job. We came out in huge numbers. Just the excitement, even speaking to people who were getting on the plane and going to Paris and investing a lot of money in that as well and obviously into the French economy. But, you know, we were speaking about earlier the the joy, I suppose, that the Irish fans brought to the Parisian streets as well and the French streets. Um, it was just, it was a lovely celebration and it was lovely to be able to do that and have something positive to talk about. So we did come together in a really 
you know, impressive way. Yeah, John, I, I suppose the problem, the Johnny Sexton issue that he is retiring, he doesn't get to punch back as it were. He doesn't have another game. He doesn't have, but that must be just personally very frustrating. At least the guys who are going back to play for Leinster and they're out doing their training. They can hit a rook, they can jump at a scrub or whatever they want to do. He's just going into his new life. So that must be difficult. It must be difficult, but also you could see the emotion yesterday and watch him with his family. And he realises this is now a bookend to an extraordinary career. I mean, the good news for him is that his legacy is assured, it's solid. And the next phase of his life is going to be quite extraordinary in the context of seeing where he ends up and what he does. But again, I think that, you know, I was saying to, to, to Adrian, I live in Ranelagh and himself and his wife are often around Ranelagh. And if you're walking down the street and you saw him, you stand up and give him a round of applause. He's been an extraordinary representative for Ireland, OK, not just in a sporting sense, but a man with great integrity and a, ga- a man, again, with extraordinary leadership skills. And I've no doubt he'd bring those leadership skills to many a business between now and his retirement. So it wasn't the way to go out. But you know what? I think Andy Farrell said, you know, that, you know, sport's a cruel game. And, you know, it is what it is. So I think put up your socks now and we'll get on with it. Yeah, and I suppose, Adrian, we don't want to be too downhearted. I mean, for Johnny Sexton, he's got like two Grand Slams, four European Cups, World Player of the Year, endless stuff with Leinster, URC Championships, Lions Tours, you know. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's not going out on a downer. So if you just see everything through the World Cup, you go, oh, we're out in the quarterfinal, what a terrible night. But he has an absolutely huge trophy cabinet to look back on. And that's kind of gets lost at moments yeah. like this, doesn't it? I think, it? as you said as well, you know, the fact that we had hope against um, the mm. Kiwis going into this um, quarterfinal says a lot in itself. And, um, you know, and, and they were worried, like listening to the interviews with them prior to the match as well. You know, it just shows, I suppose, the strength of the team that he was part of and that he led. So, you know, we have a lot to be proud of, despite it a, the fact it was, that we it was, it was a four-point game. It was a yeah. four-point game at the end. It was extraordinary. So, you know. And it could have gone the other way. It could uh, have. Which is, which is why it gives such a bitter taste in the mouth. But at the same time, you know, look, he has a stellar career behind him and, um, you know, he really shone in the last leg of the tournament there as well. So and I think the fact that the Irish government or, or the, the, the French government are acknowledging the spending spike in Paris, specifically from the Irish fans again, can only go a long way to improving the relations with Ireland and France. No, also it's been a great summer. You had the women in the World Cup, yeah. right? So, you know, again, we didn't get out of the group stage, but we had some good games and it was all history, right? It yeah. was first time and everyone likes so... It's been a pretty good summer. We can get a little bit greedy and saying we want this and we want the other. We, we've had a good summer, comparatively speaking, haven't we? Well, glass half full, I think, is where we need to go. We, we can have the tendency to, to look at the glass half empty side of things. So, you know, we've done, we have done really, really well. So, I mean, obviously, it's really good to be able to focus on some positives that we've had this year in the context of everything else. And, and also, just before we go into the trauma that is Gaza and Israel and all those awful stories that are going on in the world at the moment, it also demonstrates the absolute privilege we have as a functioning democracy in a part of the world that has peace and stability and the fact that we can celebrate and enjoy these sporting well, hold, events. Hold that thought because yeah. <laughs> I'm going to move into um, the whole regional conflict in the Middle East now. Um, this has been a, a dreadful week. Let's, uh, let's sort of make a few elementary foundational points here which was the attack on the Israeli people by Hamas was a dreadful, brutal, barbarous attack. Mm. The response by the Israeli government has been extremely difficult, extremely draconian. We don't know where it's going to go. As of this, as I've told listeners earlier, we could be telling you in 15 minutes there's a ground invasion. That's that, that seems to be almost axiomatic. This is going to happen. So we will bring you up to speed on that. But let's walk through what the Irish newspapers have made of it all. It's not an easy issue to cover. It's a polarising issue and in Ireland there's all sorts of political, local political conditions attached to this. 
I suppose we, we look at just the, the action first, if you want to go the military side of it, Adrian. Um, we have in the Sunday Times talking about Israeli troops poised for Gaza invasion. So that's kind of where the news is, where all the reporters are. They're watching it. The, the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, is, is making plans. But we all know this is not going to be good. I mean, in these built up urban areas, older people, people who are sick who haven't been able to get out, which is the you know, vast majority of the population. This is going to be a tough few days for all of us witnessing this, isn't it? In the papers, it's been described as we're, we're on the brink of the abyss here and um, there is no good outcome to the situation that we're in at the moment. There are war crimes being perpetuated on both sides, unfortunately, and it's and it's not going to get any better anytime soon. And unfortunately, you know, we're looking down the barrel of... Um, a, a, a huge amount of people are due to lose their lives one way or the other in the next, in the coming days, in the coming hours. So, I mean, as you can imagine, the papers are wall to wall coverage of it from every different um, vantage point, and and rightly so because we need to look. It's just it's not a black and white issue. It's not one bad guy and one good guy and one victim and one. Um, perpetrator. There's so much context to this, which, you know, I think a lot of us probably have ignored and looked the other way for the last 17, 18 years and got on with our own lives. And um, it has led to this absolute explosion of violence, which is not going to end well. So we have um, military troops, Israeli military troops gathered now only two miles from the Gaza border and they're ready to um, go in by land, sea and air. We don't know when, um, but this is going to be a very ugly end to a very uh, difficult situation. No, and, and, and because the Israeli government has set their objective as the dismantling and yeah. destruction of Hamas, you know, that just tells you this is going to grind on and this, they, they see it as a, an existential battle that we want to finish these guys off forever. Yeah. So that brings all the, the military issues to do with it. Um, John, if I could turn you on to talk a little bit about um, some of the coverage here. You know, a lot of people, for example of Jewish faith, people who are Israelis living in Ireland saying they don't feel safe equally. They feel they'll be picked out regardless of their attitude. They could be, you know, a peace campaigner, some of who the victims were. Uh, and they, they feel that there's that issue that gets covered. These are the protests that are also happening yeah. in Dublin. Someone uh, jumped over the fence during the week and threw red paint at the embassy. So it, it is bubbling up here locally as well, isn't it? But actually, interestingly, if you look across Europe, look at the UK, look at Germany, look at France, there's been a, a huge amount of actual protests again again, in support of Palestine. But back to your point about the complexity of this, what strikes me as being really interesting is there's potentially a generation of people who have kind of been disconnected from the Israeli-Palestine issue. And it strikes me again that if you watch the media over the last few days, all of those reports about trying to explain how we've got to where we've got to. And all you can think of is that if anything good can come out of this, which is hard to kind of comprehend, does it become the touchstone that actually gets the world the US, Europe and the UN engaged in supporting a process for conversation. And, you know, that whole concept of identifying clear principles of engagement with regard to fixing it, because they've now, I mean, to me, it feels like the, even the concept and the conversation on the two-state solution has been kicked. Yeah, we just don't hear, you just don't hear that phrase very much. And you can hear now in some of the debates that people are acknowledging that it was a great aspiration, but look, we're not, it's not going to happen. So we've got to be really, really careful, but the world needs to step up now. And is that really, I think Mary Robinson during the week when she was talking about uh, Kim uh, Dante's death and she put it really well. She said, look, for all of the complexities and our sympathies for the Palestinians in this context, historically, nothing can justify what Hamas has done. And they really have created an environment now where the world is at risk. Because again, when you get that map out and you look at the region, 
and you consider if Iran are involved and what can happen in the region, okay? And if the Israeli, um, and it's not about if, it's when they're going to have that ground invasion, okay? And the consequences of that, the world could be pulled into an extraordinary uh, conflict that may take years to resolve. So it is something that, again, you hope there's going to be a balanced. I mean, even as we're talking here today. Yeah, you're conscious that there's two sides in the conflict, you know, and and sometimes it gets one-sided and oh you know <laughs> yeah I think there has to be I mean I think that the, the difficulty that what's happened here is that a lot of world leaders have jumped very fast in to support one side of this conflict and you know they might find themselves in a very difficult situation holding a hot coal because the proportionality of the response yeah. by Israel onto the people of Gaza and I think what, what slightly leaves me impatient in, in Ireland at least we, we see all of these um, issues through the Northern Ireland peace process yeah. so we sort of say well why can't people out in that part of the world be like the people on this island? Why can't there be a John Hume or why can't there, you know, it doesn't just transfer. There is no peace process, John. There is currently no peace process no. and there isn't willing negotiators who are saying, I'll meet you tomorrow and talk about it. So it's not like Northern Ireland. So we do try to transpose constantly this kind of, why can't they be just like the Northern Because it's totally different. The dynamics are different. It's a different part of the world. There's two, there's no, the Christian religion is not pivotal to this particular conflict, no. but different religion. So Adrian, do you think sometimes in Ireland we can be a little bit, and Gary Murphy has an interesting op-ed piece, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but he's talking yeah. about the attitude of what he calls now, and I stress he calls it the, the hard left, is what he describes them as. So he, he says a lot of people who tweet excitedly in favour of the Palestinian cause, A, know very little about it, and two, look for purity, as he says, in what's a very complex situation. I suppose that's not a bad I think last sentence, isn't it? I think it's pulling, obviously, and rightly so, but it's pulling on the heartstrings of many people to see the conflict on both sides. I think there's a lot of fear for, for you know, people who might be tweeting and liking the tweets for in support of um, the Palestinian people because, you know, we're looking at a situation whereby people are being um, targeted where there's no escape. And so there's a human response to that, um, in a situation that we may not have the, you know, be fully educated on the entire context of um, even not only the Israeli and Palestinian um, situation, but also the wider um, area, the geographical area. There are so many sensitivities there. And, you know, uh, there are so it's such delicate. They're big superpowers. You're talking about Iran. You're talking about you know, the United States. There's China, China, Russia. Russia. You know, there's so many different. One possible negotiator, area. Vladimir Putin, Putin offering yeah. himself as a negotiator. I mean, I don't to think hear, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose as well to hear uh, yeah, the Russian government come out and and condemn the attacks as well has obviously raised a few eyebrows. Irony um, irony is redundant. And it's probably, you know, serving Russia to some degree as well to have the spotlight taken off the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict as of well. Of course, so, of course it does. That's a good point. Um, John, can I ask you a little bit about something in the Sunday Independent? I'm just trying to keep it somewhat yeah. domestically focused because our listeners are interested in those aspects. Uh, Sinn Féin's Hamas links the Sunday Independent is exploring. Now, this is an interesting kind of side story. I mean, it's obviously a, 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 a relevant story to some extent in terms of the actual event, what's going on. But here in domestic, excuse our parochialism for a second, but Sinn Féin, you've got Mary Lou Macdonald, she yeah. had one interview, you've got Chris Andrews tweeting out, sort of seems to be very much um, messages that aren't in alignment with what she's saying. What do you make of that whole area? Well, I think, I think it's interesting, before we come into the, the studio this morning, there's a huge sensitivity about, about talking this in any context. And that absolutely kind of frightening sense of that if you're anyway critical of Israel, it's seen as being anti-Semitic. You want to talk about the, the pain on both sides. And it's a really hard balance to get. I mean, 
Sinn Féin have had a policy of supporting Hamas in the past and they've been very explicit in that support. And in the current environment, back to the thing about the north of Ireland, you know, we know it's very complex. But, but, but Emmett, if you want to give any hope to anybody, there was a time in the north of Ireland where there was nobody having those conversations and people dying every day. So the point is that there is potentially a place that people can get to to resolve these issues. And I think that in that context, what's going to be very interesting on the doll in the next few weeks is watching how the leaders really get their narrative right with regard to that support. I mean, between now and the middle of next week, only God knows, I was just working at this morning, I think it's over three and a half thousand people have died so far in uh, Israel and in Gaza. When you think that's the total number of people who died in the Northern Ireland Troubles over a period of a week. So just the context of this is really extraordinary. We've got to be very careful to... And I think Sinn Féin are in somewhat of a hole in this respect. So it'll be interesting to see how their narrative shifts and changes as the, as the thing evolves. OK, I think we, we all three of us, if I do say so, have dealt, uh, dealt with the subject reasonably on a balanced matter. So we'll see what our listeners think. But for now, we'll take a short break. Folks, we're moving on from the Middle East and we're talking finance. It has, of course, been budget week. It's kind of hard to know how it went. I mean, the headlines were reasonably positive. A lot of money thrown around, you know, in the billions measured in that sort of quantum. Most people were getting something. So there's no Mm. group out there that isn't. But the thing that's coming through, Adrian, that a lot of the coverage is the job wasn't fully done. There's various health spending that still has to be covered. There's various overruns that maybe we didn't know the full extent of on the day that the figures were announced. There's talk of supplementary estimates. Um, What's your sense? It seems to be health is where all the action is, the political action. Yeah, I think um, the budget, I would probably call it a confetti budget. There was a little bit for everybody. Um, But then there's this massive black hole in our finances, which is um, the health service. And I suppose we kind of skipped over it saying, well, look, we're not giving any more to the health service, but um, we're going to have to uh, shore up the HSE going forward to a massive degree and it's it's completely draining the finances of this country and it seems like not a massive reform is taking place of this uh, of the service unfortunately so yeah it's um it's a massive problem that we have on our hands i don't really see where we're going to get the solutions um at this exact moment in time um, but th- we need reform yeah, and uh, John, I suppose I, I direct your attention to kind of a very interesting lead story, the Sunday Independent. I, I don't know, think this band is going to be too popular in government, but the HSE Chief Executive Bernard Gloucester wrote a letter to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, just hours before the budget announcement. So you can imagine this arriving in either presumably comes by email or in a PDF or something like that. And he says that what you're putting out there as an estimate will not be adequate to meet our funding and the estimate may be incorrect as a result um, this is a big shortfall in the HSE. So you can imagine Stephen Donnelly's reaction to that. But the, the HSE, we know it needs reform. We know a lot of the outcomes that it produces are not good enough. But equally, they'll say, look, there's massive rising demand and we don't have enough money. Well, at a very simple level, we've just got to understand there's 22.5 billion in the budget this year. That's 30 odd percent of the total expenditure for the government is going into health. So I'd have a view at this stage now as, a, you know, we've talked about reform, Emmett, for too long. Why isn't it being reformed? What's the problem? And if Mr. Gloucester has gone in as the CEO with a budget of 22.5 billion, we have to get value for money. And piling in money on top of it to me at this stage now is not the solution. And I want to know what's the problem preventing from these really bright people who've been put into run the HSE that have failed to reform it. So whether it's kind of 
interest groups, whether it's the inability to fire people, whether it's the inability to really make really key strategic uh, strategic decisions. It's not beyond the wit of some very bright people in government within the HSE to fix this. Well, it so, seems to be beyond our wit because it hasn't happened. <laughs> but I, but there, there, this is my question. What is it that's preventing it? Is it the fact that at a government level, they're actually incapable and their hands are tied to actually make real change? We've had I this conversation. hands are tied is the problem because, yeah. you, know, the, you know, people are tied into contracts. It's very, very hard to get rid of any... Um, what shall I say, the non-performing staff members yeah. that may be costing um, a lot to the health service. Um, and we may be overstocked on the administration side of things and understocked on the frontline um, practitioners. Yeah, because when you look at the numbers, we don't actually have that many beds per head of population. That came very evident in COVID, but you actually look at the hard numbers. So it's not as if the, the, the hospitals themselves are leading class hospitals I and mean, you've all been if you had a family member in A&E you do not walk into these places and go wow and the frontline staff are under immense yes. pressure and they are working almost double jobs and they are carrying the load but, here but what seems to be happening to me Adrian I don't know if you agree with this but it seems to be an attempt to sort of almost drain the funding of, of short term I'm not saying anyone wants to do this to sort of a, starve the beast to, to pick up John's point and sort of say to Stephen Donnelly no you're not getting the money you find Fixers. better ways to do things, more efficient ways. He's obviously saying, well, that's not going to be done in a year. You know, I need money now. And the man at the head of the HSE is saying, I need money tomorrow morning. So we're, they're it's, all on a bit of a hook, aren't they? It's the sa- exactly the same situation, just on a smaller scale, um, RTE and, and the health service. You know, both need reform, but both are going to run out of money. So you're stuck um, between a rock and a hard place deciding what to do. And I mean, you're not going to let either go under. You have to pay the bills at the end of the day in order for the, the, the whole environment and the establishment to survive. So, um, you know, that, and that doesn't breed, the, it's not a good breeding ground for uh, now, dramatic John, reform. We have, OK, we're all obsessed with the health service. It's kind of like the, the back kick of the budget. It was, it was a positive budget in terms of the amount of yeah. money they had to spend. But now you're getting this kind of uh, backwash saying, oh, well, the health service is not fully funded and we don't know what's going to go. But looking internationally, if you look at the Sunday Independent, page four, yeah. the Economist says that our public finances are in great nick. We're one of the winners of the post-COVID pandemic economic era. We've got a balanced budget, big surplus. Unemployment is pretty much is evaporated and disappeared. Yeah. So are we being a bit too inward looking, do you think? I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And I think, again, as we discussed in all the issues this morning, we need to put things in context. I mean, the bottom line is that the, the I, I sit on the, the Council of Dublin Chamber. We issued a, a release um, uh, following the budget. And I suppose the view, our view was it was a step in the right direction. But the biggest and most important thing was the commitment to capital spending and infrastructure spending. So the Metrolink the DART, the water supply projects. There's some really, really good stuff that's been put in there. So we've got to put things in context. This is a democracy that functions. The government works in principle. We have a, we have, we have a judiciary that works. We have a temperate climate. We are a very lucky people to live in this country. And that economist external perspective, Emmett, I think is really important to remind us. We always find the negative in everything, all right, in so many respects. We're always moaning and groaning, looking for the... Look, looking for Hang on, I, I need to get paid here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Excuse no, me, yeah. we, 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 that's my job. <laughs> well, come on. No, but, but I think the point is that we've got to really be really clear about the fact that in the environment post-COVID, to see a 14 billion expenditure with regard to the budget is actually... Phenomenal. And do, does that in some way add to the frustration? Because people are saying, we've got huge surpluses, there's no shortage of cash per se, but we still can't get these big institutional problems right. But then this is where, and again, I know I use this phrase, but with strategic intent, you'd love to think that politically they could all get together and have a proper strategic plan with regard to 
housing and health and infrastructure. I mean, we're talking here about all these things and the way we're going now, we'll, we'll, we'll run out of water in Dublin in the next few years unless we build this new aqueduct from, from the Shan. So where is the strategic intent and who's going to have the, the nerve and the, and, 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 the, and the guts to say, this we're going to do over the next 10 years, this is going to cost. So I think that their commitment to the Metrolink and all these things is really important because it ties up money in the longer term to make these fundamental infrastructural projects work and make the country safer. OK, Adrian, um, despite the criticism of the health service, of the budget being a bit tardy in some respects and supplementary estimates sort of stuffed in at the end, etc., you go to page two of the Sunday Times where Micheál Martin is extremely popular, according to this, which is maybe yeah. a surprise to some. Um, he obviously had a tough time during the pandemic. He's returned to a satisfaction level of 47%, eclipsing Mary Lou MacDonald. I won't go through all the others. You've obviously got Eamon Ryan, Leo Varadkar's further back, etc., but Michal Martin, whatever he's doing or yeah. not doing, or maybe he's staying out of the way or whatever, but he, he's chiming with the public, it says here. Yeah, he's um, broken Mary Lou MacDonald's winning streak in terms of popularity. And um, I think this probably result has surprised us to some degree. Um, I think maybe Michal Martin has been a consistent and solid figure. And, uh, you know, maybe people are uh, glad of that. I mean, he he has. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by the results of this, but um, I'm sure he's absolutely. Maybe it's because he's in foreign affairs, right? I mean, yeah. Sometimes I mean, there's you can no do well there, right? It's less no controversial. To, it's, you know, you're, you're on the world stage. You're doing all you're these not interviews affecting about world events. At the end yeah. of the day. But, but, the other ministries like Don Lee, for example, you know, it's a tough ministry. But also remember, Michal Martin, in fairness, has been a committed public servant for the, 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 the last 30 years. And whatever your political nuances, he's a man of integrity and he's a man who's certainly demonstrated, from my perspective, a level of intelligence. And the last Is this a party political problem no, having Michal Martin here? And, and I <laughs> but to me, that last 18 months of, his, of him in Taoiseach, he really came into his own. And I think as Tánish said, he's demonstrating a real level of confidence and self-assuredness and sure-footedness. And I think people really respect and appreciate yeah. that. So yeah, I'd say to, to Michael Martin, fair play. Part of it may have been a practical reason, though, because Mary Lou MacDonald was was absent from public engagements for, for most of the summer. So potentially she, she fell out of the public's um, she, yeah, consciousness so a just for it's, a short it's, time. It's not very yeah. complex or alchemy or whatever. Yeah. It's just... And we're just more visible than the, others, right? I mean, that's we're just off the back of the silly season as well. Like, really, we haven't kicked into um, you know the full term of the doll, yeah. etc. So, you know, she, she'll be back in in the forefront of people's minds now soon enough. So, this may not be a fair reflection. Uh, I suppose there are always snapshots. Can I direct your attention to something um, a bit more technical, but nevertheless interesting? On page four of the Business Post about the central bank. Yeah. You both look very askance and go, don't ask me about that. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, re- I did read it. OK, yeah. Adrian, you can... Uh, John looks like, don't, don't come to me on that no, one. I'm, re- I'm ready, I'm ready. Uh, central bank faces historic fine for major GDPR breach. Now, we've all sort of had a... G- if you haven't had a GDPR breach in your employment or your life, you, there's something gone wrong, right? You're not, you're not dynamic enough, right? But nevertheless, the fact that they're kind of a, regula- kind of a regulatory body in terms of banking and so on... It's going to be a big fine, according to this. So it's not great for the central bank because they administer a lot of things where there are breaches and sanctions involved when their own house is not in order, Adrian. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't look great. The fine, while it is big, I think is up to one million it could, um, mm. it could incur, which I suppose in the scheme of things is not absolutely huge either. And I think um, ultimately effect, it affected, basically it was accused of holding um, the records of 20,000, I believe, um, people's uh, documents slightly longer than they should have and it affected the uh, outcome of 50 applications for loans. So, you know, it's, it's not great reputationally 
I imagine it was probably a, a smaller admin error that uh, will be fixed going forward, but it's it's obviously not fantastic for the reputation. No. And John, you, you'd know this more than anybody. Yep. GDPR is so wide ranging, <laughs> it's it just catches you. You know, people, it does. So this uh, is the problem probably here. But, but, the, but the response to this is to me is, first of all, organisations make mistakes and things happen. What's most important is they had a policy, they have a process and a procedure and they've responded to it. And it just highlights for any organisation the issue of governance is just so fundamentally important and getting it right. But from my perspective, I have no problem in principle of people making mistakes as long as one, they capture them, catch them, fix it, own up to it and move on. And I think in that sense, I think the central bank... Acknowledge, apologise and move on. Absolutely. So I think, I think it's a bit of a storm in a teacup in some respects. But I think, again, just for every organisation out there, large or small, governance is key. Now, I want to talk about housing. It's hard to believe we've gone 42 minutes and we haven't touched on this because it is the issue du jour for everybody politically and economically. Business Post getting very excited about a story today, which is, let me find the story, which is on page one, which would be a nice place to go which concerns the commercial property market, Adrian. We know all about the residential property market. We've all had our say on that and endless opinion pieces about saying. But this is interesting because we're seeing a vacancy rate in Dublin of about 14%. According to the Business Post, people are handing back the keys, which certainly sounds dramatic. We'll see if that trend uh, really kind of becomes overt. But there's a sense that office land is really in trouble here. Some parts of Dublin can be a bit of a ghost land at times. Is this something we need to worry worried about all of the rest of us, apart from those who are landlords or have investments? What do you think? Yeah, well, I think probably they're two separate issues in terms of the commercial property and, and the residential. Like They're two completely different beasts, but at the same time, it's not a positive indication that um, the asset value are is dropping. But it's dropping because, you know, everything has changed post-COVID in terms of how we work. Um, now, some of it is getting back to normal, but um, it has changed how commercial enterprises operate effectively. They don't need the build, buildings as big as they once did and uh, business needs have changed. So it is worrying, but um, I think these are smaller anecdotal um, issues that are happening there. I don't think it's across the board just yet. And John, I mean, if we think the Middle East is polarising, <laughs> working from home or not working from home, I've done programmes in here where literally my screen has lit up on fire by one group of people who work at home, another pe- group of people who want everyone to come back to the office, and then we have our hybrids who are the people in the middle. Um, this does play into this debate of empty office buildings. Some people are tracking back, others are saying, I'm never going back. Where are we on working from home? Because you would know in your professional life. So I think, first of all, I think the statement that is made emphatically by every organisation that the genie is out of the bottle now with regard to flexible working. So the concept of having a mixed three days, two days, four days, one day is out and it's there. So I have to say that I think that both industry and government have walked somewhat blindly into this concept of remote working and flexible working and it hasn't been thought through. And there are still so many issues with regard to making it right and making it function properly. And I think that, we know, that work-life balance conversation needs to be really, really robustly engaged with, all right? I mean, what's, I, I think this commercial property thing is a bit of an adjustment in the market. It's kind of a, a market reaction. The bottom line is that we're certainly seeing a larger number of people coming back to work. We're seeing organisations making emphatic decisions that it's not three days, it's four days in the office and one. I know one organisation that's planning to get people back five days next year so that the remote working piece is going to go on, but the flexible working piece will be different. So they've no problem with people coming in at 10 and working through. But this is a real impact because those commercial properties also affect your pensions. So people are invested in pensions and the whole market is connected by this. So what you hope is that one, as, as an economy, 
we will make intelligent, proper decisions regarding the flexible and the remote working piece, all right? And we'll understand the implications of it. Because again, there's huge social issues with regard to the remote working and even flexible working. But there's also personal development. We, we know of stories where we've put people in at the beginning of lockdown into organisations as interns or as graduates. And at the end of the two-year programme, having come back into work, that the senior people in the organisation are saying that the graduates are at least 40% behind where they would normally be. And that's related to the fact that they're out of the office, not getting the sitting, sitting by... They're not getting training. the mentoring. They're not, they're not getting the mentoring. They're not, they're, you know, and they're not creating social skills. So there's a huge amount of issues here. And I think the property one is just an integral part of that conversation. And, and, and we tend to blithely say, well, turn them into houses, which is not a bad idea, but it's a very difficult idea. With planning permission, you can't just go tomorrow morning, convert office blocks that are owned by private property owners into... Um, different forms of housing and but we may get there eventually. Now we have a few more final things to get through before we head to the midday news. Yes, that story that won't die it just won't die which is the Orte story there on the front page of a number of papers. Kevin Backhurst I'm almost tiring of seeing his face on the front of pages at this point. But let's just very briefly mention, Adrian, that there's a few bits about the committee meeting that they had last week, where they're going to get the money. Uh, just very briefly, what is, is it really taken much of a leap forward in the last five days? No, it's taken a leap backwards. It's sink or swim for RTE, as we found out this week. And um, 16 million was set aside in the budget um, for uh, RTE for next year. But it uh, now turns out that RTE will need um, approximately an extra 40 million on top of that by next spring or else it's going to be insolvent which is a terrible place to be for for those at RTE and again we're talking about reform massive reform is needed but you know again Kevin Backhurst is putting out a large fire in a, in a large building and where does he start? Yeah, there's a good headline here. Time is money and Backhurst has neither, which is a nice succinct headline in the Business Post. But let, let's move away from Morty because I guarantee it'll be in the news again next week. So we're not missing anything by not giving it huge coverage today. RC Words, let's just put it that way from the restaurant <laughs> world, is what I like to focus on. Um, page 19 of the Daily Mail. They're talking about the fact that 41% of us have to take out our phones at a restaurant and kind of look up words. Uh, a smacked cucumber <laughs> is apparently one of the phrases. Um, we'll explain in a second. Things like enhanced confit, scalded, blackened, flambéed, fermented, burned. I, I'm surprised anyone has to look at burned. I'm a bit, <laughs> bit confused about that one. And blanched. How are you with all of these, John? I mean, do you know you're blanched from your smacked cucumbers or what's well, the story? I have to say I'm very comfortable with all of these. And obviously, you know, we cooked for certain standards at home and we're smacking cucumbers all the time. I'm burning. Um, yeah. <laughs> OK, well done, Adrian. But I think that, do you know what this highlights? One, it's a bit of fun and you have restaurants saying basically they do this on purpose to get engagement from the customers. But just think where we were 20 years ago when it came to food. We have such an extraordinary choice in this country and Dublin is one of the great food capitals of Europe now. And you can have smacked cucumbers and flambéed, whatever you want now. So we've made an awful lot of progress and I just think it's a great bit of fun and I wouldn't be afraid. I mean, one of the great joys when you go into a restaurant is actually asking, what is that? OK, and getting the staff to actually explain it and kind of give you some sort of sense of theatre and engagement. So I think, you know, bring on your flambés. Yeah, I, I was in Clare a few years ago and a, a local farmer that I met down there, the great description of food in an expensive restaurant. He said the food was... Thin on the plate, but fat on the wallet. <laughs> Which I, I looked was up, Adrian, what, what do you, had you known some of these before you read this piece, all of these, some no, of them? No, I, I definitely fall into the 41% here that would be taking the phone out under the table. I, I looked up one starter on one very prominent um, Dublin restaurant's menu and um, I definitely have the phone out for this. I don't know about you, but aged comte souffle with champagne, quince and piedmont hazelnut. Do you know what you're Yeah, I <laughs> 
what would you be eating? Like, I mean, I'm sure it'd be absolutely fabulous. Is it fabulous. on a slate plate? Yes, so probably. I have a problem. Well, as long as you know plate. your camembert from your cons, you'll be all right, you know, so, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, this is kind of almost uh, making up for a lack of substance, isn't it? The more verbiage and words you pile onto the menu... I mean, everything's on a drizzle. Everything's drizzled in something. Everything's on a bed or something. And the slate plates that don't come off the table and the waiter <laughs> is grappling to get the thing off. So it's all part of I mean, a lot of people go to more, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but basic meat and two veg type restaurants because they find that portion sizes are tiny in an inflationary environment. There's more words than food or carbohydrates or protein on the plate. So is there this kind of RC words, as I call it, is it making up for sometimes a restaurant that isn't really delivering? No, I think this is all about giving you choice. And the bottom line is you can go from one end of the scale to the other. And we have choice and you have that experience. And many of these top end restaurants create what you could only describe as an, an experience, OK, an entertaining, engaged experience. And it's all about the foraging and the presentation and the new things and the different bits and pieces. So all this is demonstrating to me is that Ireland and Dublin has the most extraordinary level of choice when it comes to food that we haven't now had steak before. Diane and I, is, what is steak Diane? Well, look, listen, and, and the, who chi- is the, chicken, the chicken cordon bleu, for God's sake, you know. But I mean, look, look, isn't it great that we even have this conversation? OK, the bottom line is <laughs> choice, choice, choice. And that's what it's all about. Adrian, um, I suppose our restaurants have been having a tough time, so we we can't be too hard on the words they're using if they want to jazz up a yeah. kind of a slightly boring menu. And a lot of restaurants, they have very predictable menu choice that they do year after year. If they change it, everyone says, I really like that thing you had. Yeah, and that's yeah. the problem that a lot of restaurant owners have. And I've been talking to, to some that say that, you know, they want to even become a little bit more adventurous, um, but can't because people will be looking for their chicken wings and <laughs> yeah. uh, and so on and so forth. But no, look, I mean, we're, we're, we, as John said, we're very, very lucky with the with the choice and um, variety that we have um, available to us. So, you know, if we want to have our champagne quince and Piedmont hazelnut, um, so be it if we can afford it. But uh, well, whatever that is, yeah, <laughs> we'll enjoy it nonetheless, I'm sure. Now, one final story, John, leaving the restaurants aside, I haven't mentioned our friends in Angarda Shakona. We know that they have been in the news with Minister for Justice Helen McAtee. Crime is not rising in a lot of categories, but there has been a tough few months, particularly in the north inner city. We do have a Garda Fortis, which is down uh, if you measure it as a proportion of population. That is a fact. So they have been trying to get more Garda in and the age has gone up to 50. So I'm going to join. I fancy a nice job in the Garda with a reasonable pension. So I'm going to put in my application. But what, what do you think, John? I mean, it's been an interesting week, probably a more positive week for the Garda than they've been getting for a while. Well, I think the scene of the commissioner and the 128 graduates down at Templemore throwing their hats in the air was phenomenal. And such a diverse group of people who are so enthusiastic about joining the guards. They were all people from different backgrounds, different qualifications, different experience, and they were so enthusiastic. So my view is that Drew Harris has now hopefully got through the storm of all the, the giving out. Let him do what he needs to do. Let's get the numbers up. But the guard, the Khan, looks like a place that lots of young people are willing and enthusiastic to work in. Is that, is that a good thing? That's a good thing. And even a few 40-year-olds are going to be well, listen to me. joining. Unfortunately, I've, John, now, you won't make it, I've just passed. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I could do a bit of mentoring maybe. But um, I think it's a great idea. And it just shows again that, that everything's on the table. OK, listen, we've got to leave it that on hopeful note because the Gardaí haven't been getting good publicity in recent months, so they deserve a little bit of a break. Thank you to both of you. Adrian Sweeney, who's the director of Paris Court Spring Health Farm, and also John Cunningham, who you heard there, who was the relationship director with Morgan McKinley. They both had a difficult time coming in today after last night's match. There wasn't you know, necessarily many takers uh, initially to uh, come in and talk to us on our last ever On The Record, but we do thank you for your contributions in the, on this show and previous shows because they have been in before. 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.